Um, this morning, we're going to talk about uh, a topic that I have studied for many, many years. I was a worship pastor for several years. Uh, I know there are thousands and thousands of books that have been written about worship. I know that there are a lot of seminars and a lot of podcasts and discussions and teachings and everything. Literally, you could talk about worship for eternity because that's what we're going to be doing for eternity. So... Um, I'm going to try to cover a couple of aspects of it today based on the life of David. We're doing a series called David in 3D, the whole guy, David, the whole guy. So today it's worship by David and it's kind of an example of who he was, but I'm also going to compare and contrast him to two other characters that are in this particular chapter. And maybe we can try to identify some things in ourselves, see some things in ourselves, either for for positive or some of the things that maybe we want to grow and improve on. There you go. Emergency, 911. Um, So what is worship? What does it mean to worship something? Anybody know? To pour out your heart and soul towards something. What else? Anybody? I'm sorry? To exalt, yeah. To adore something. You should come up here and do this. I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, we're 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 called. It's 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 an action. It is an action. Worship. I mean, obviously, we understand that there's, we should worship the Lord. But really, when you break it down, when you come right down to it, what worship is, is something, it, the, the actual original language means to gaze upon. It means like to, to sit and stare at or to kiss toward. Uh, some translations, it really actually means like a, a dog licking its owner's hand. That's, a, that's one of the terms of worship. Worship means to ascribe great value to something. And worship really is the thing that you focus most on. The thing that you spend the majority of your time thinking about, focusing on, uh, functioning under. You know, you can worship a lot of things besides God. Some of the things you can worship are money. Obviously, that's an easy one. With the mega millions, how many of you are disappointed you didn't win? What is it, $1.6 billion or something? Can't even imagine. But people worship. I mean, you saw some of the crazy things people were willing to do for that for money. Money is a thing, and you can worship money even if you don't have money. If you have money, obviously that can be your your main source, your main focus, the thing that you gaze upon, you think about all the time, you obsess over. Or conversely, it can be the thing that if you have way too much of it, you become attached to it and it becomes your security and you start to think that's the center of your life. And, and you can worship your job. I mean, obviously a job is a good thing. It's a righteous thing. It's, it, the Bible says that if you don't provide for the needs of your family, you're worth, worse than the infidel. So obviously having a job is a good thing. The Bible says all hard work leads to profit. But some people get obsessed with their jobs. That's all they think about and all they talk about and all they do. They have nothing else in their lives. And... and some people get obsessed with relationships. You know, there's somebody that they're 
maybe infatuated with or, or they, they long for that relationship with that person and not in a healthy way, but in a much more codependent way, in a way that they put that person over everything else. How many of you have known people like that? Stalkers or whatever? <laughs> no, I mean, stalkers worship the object of their... I'm not, I'm not calling you stalkers. <laughs> Didn't mean to insult you. But, you know, you've heard of the stories. I mean, I mean even that, the, the guy up at the U, he was, he was like he worshipped that girl, but then he ended up murdering her. I mean, worship of anything else besides God is not good. It's not healthy. <clears throat> and it is whatever you focus on. Think about the thing. What is the thing that you spend the majority of your time thinking about? And focusing on. That's the thing you worship. So today we're going to talk about how to be like David in our worship. How we can really have a lifestyle of worship. And so um, if you want to take out your smartphone or your Bible if you have one. Um, in Second Samuel chapter 6. By the way, if, uh, if you didn't if you don't have a Bible app or you don't have a smartphone, we have Bibles in the back on the soundboard. I'm sure Pete, Pete, can you wave at everybody? He would be happy to hand one to you. Um, read your Bible, okay? Just, just read your Bible. <laughs> I know that you expect to hear that in church, but I can honestly tell you, if I go, if I go two or three days without reading the Bible, I, I become a psycho, I apologize to all of you psychos out there, but I really get, I mean, my personality starts to morph. You guys are so, you should be so thankful that I read my Bible, because <laughs> without it, I'm a little scary. So read your Bible. That is your source of life. That is the way to get to know God. You know, it's that Jesus says that he's seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship God rightly if you don't really know what he says about himself, so... That's a shameless plug for the Bible. <laughs> it's a great book. So 2 Samuel chapter 6 says, Then David gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Balah of Judah to bring back the Ark of God. Okay, what's the Ark of God? The Ark of God is some, in some translations called the Ark of the Covenant. What that represented in the Old Testament was the presence of God. That is what the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of God was the presence of God. When Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, he said after that he was going to send his Holy Spirit to lead us, to comfort us, to guide us into all truth. By the way, if you're going through a hard time, John chapter 14 is such an awesome chapter to read. And it talks about the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, they didn't yet have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So the Holy Spirit was represented by the ark. Okay, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, the ark of God, which bears the name of the God of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. This is the God that they're serving. It says, they place the ark of God on a new cart, Note that. And they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. The significance of this was that this is not the way that they were supposed to transport the ark. They weren't supposed to put the ark on a cart. The way they were supposed to transport it was on 
two poles and they were supposed to put those poles on their shoulders and then it was supposed to hang between and that was how they were supposed to transport it. But for some reason, they came up with this great idea that, you know, God told us to do it that way, but, you know, it's so inefficient. We're going we're gonna to do it this way. We're going to put it on a new cart. So they did not follow the regulations that the Lord had laid out. They didn't follow the specific instructions that God had given. So they put it on a new cart, and then they brought it from Abinadab's house. Uh, Verse 3 says, Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Okay, so they were so excited because they had gotten the Ark of the Covenant back. They had gotten the Ark of God back. The presence of God had returned. And they were so excited, so they were celebrating. And now notice here, excuse me, the musical instruments. You know, there are some churches that believe that you shouldn't have any musical instruments. But this really makes a case for the fact that, thank you, sir. Thank you, kind sir. Um, this, is a, this makes a case that musical instruments are very biblical, right? Um, there are some churches that think that you can only uh, have a pipe organ, and that's the only in- instrument that is holy. But really, the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I think you can pretty much use whatever you want, as long as that's what your heart's desire is to do, right? You could use a Fisher-Price toy if you want although I don't recommend doing that. Um, At least don't bring it to church. Um, 2 Samuel 6, uh, verse 6, it says, But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand, and he steadied the ark of God. Sounds like like a really responsible thing to do, right? Good job, Uzzah. Ah. Not good job, Uzzah, because you're never supposed to touch the Ark of God. You are never supposed to touch it. It was considered a thing of holiness. It was never supposed to be touched because then it would become unclean. It says here, and the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. Whoa. Wow. This is a really confusing passage for people because of that, because it seems like poor Uzzah is just trying to do the right thing, right? It's like the Ark is falling and he wants... But why is the ark falling? Because they didn't follow the regulations of God. And I started, as I was reading this, I started thinking, isn't that how we are too? You know, we'll be like, "Uh, I know the Bible says this, but uh, that's not that convenient. You know, I don't really, I mean, God, he didn't really mean that, right? Think about the original lie. What's the very first lie in the Bible? What was it? Yeah. What's the first lie? Did God really say that? Come on. That's not what... Did God really say to pay your taxes? I mean, you know, people will justify that. They'll say, oh, I don't pay my taxes because they use that money for, for things that don't honor God. But the Bible clearly says, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Or some people in relationships, they're like, well, I know I should probably wait until I'm married to have sex, but 
I mean, God's not, it's not that big a deal. I mean, we're engaged or we're dating or we're committed to each other. You know, what's, what could go wrong? What could really go wrong, right? <clears throat> I'll tell you a story, something that went wrong one time. Uh, this young lady that I had led to Christ, um, she, she was uh, from a gang and she was tough. She came from a pretty rough background. And I shared Christ with her, and she ended up coming to the Lord. But then Satan's favorite trick is to bring a guy. And that was what happened. So she, she ended up meeting this guy, and she decided that she, she wanted him more than she wanted the things of God. And I went to her, and I, I pled with her. I said, you know what? I said, you... God has such a call on your life. And I I just, I said, don't compromise. And um, she ended up, she got pregnant. And she had a tubal pregnancy and had to have a hysterectomy at the age of 28. And I just, I'm not saying like, I told you so, at all. I'm just saying, we don't understand the caution of God and the safety of God and, you know, all of the, the sexually transmitted diseases that are a result of having multiple partners and all of these things. It's like God isn't a spoil sport. Everything God does, he does for our good. But when we try to take shortcuts or we try to cut corners or we try to kind of maybe not quite obey all the way, it, it never goes well. And so in the case of Uzzah, he took a shortcut. He's like, let's do this thing on the cart. That makes way more sense, right? And look what happened. So, <clears throat> that's kind of heavy, huh? So, in verse 8, it says, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the Ark of the Lord into the city of David. What's the city of David? Anybody know? Jerusalem. That's called the city of David. Even to this day, it's still called that. And instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The Ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Okay, so David's like, wait a second here. God is really blessing Obed-Edom. I'm going to get that ark of God, and I'm going to bring it to the city of David. And so then it says, verse 14, I love this. It says, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. Some people say that this is a linen ephod. Um, And Ira is going to actually come and demonstrate his linen ephod for us. No, he's not actually. <laughs> no, not really. Some people say that a linen ephod is like a like a, a loincloth, or like a g-string, or <laughs> I don't know, uh, a thong. I guess. Um, 
But the more that I studied that, the more that I really saw that that's probably not really what it is. It's probably more that what this symbolized was that David took off his royal robe. He took off that which identified him as the king to worship. Because a linen ephod, from what I, what I studied, and, and it's kind of up in the air. Different scholars have different attitudes about what it was. Some people think that like he stripped down to his skivvies, and so that was why it was so undistinguished of him. But some people say that the linen ephod was, it actually went over the shoulders, and it was kind of like just his undergarments, shall we say. And it says, and David danced before the Lord, and it says, and, and so all the people brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing of ram's horns. So here's David, the king of Israel, going nuts, dancing his full head off. He is dancing with all of his might, okay? You get the picture of this? He's taken off his robe. He's just going crazy. He's dancing. He's celebrating. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. Then... What happens is Michael, his wife, or Michal, she has contempt for David. Now listen to this, verse 16. It says, as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, the what? Note that. The daughter of Saul looked down from her window. When she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. When David returned home to bless his own family, McCall, the, came out to meet him. Now, how many of you husbands know, when you're coming home from work, your wife comes out to meet you, it's not good. <laughs> right? You're like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. What did I do? Did I leave my towel on the floor? Did I not throw my underwear in the hamper? right? So she is so ticked off that she comes out to meet him. Rather than staying and waiting for him, she comes out to meet him. And she said in disgust, oh, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to McCall, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me Above your dad, by the way, and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. So here we go. So McCall is disgusted. She looks out. She sees her kingly husband who is dancing like a fool in the streets, in his linen ephod, whatever that was. And, and she's like, are you serious? You have got to be kidding me. So now remember... It says three times, she is the daughter of Saul. So it makes me wonder, now I'm just speculating here, but it makes me wonder, was there some marital tension going on here? Was she identifying more with her father, Saul, who, if you remember, Saul wanted to kill David. Saul had it out for David. He had a vendetta against him. So, so was, she, was she more like a political bride? I mean, did David marry her just because it was politically expedient or... Or were they in love? I mean, what was going on here? Or did she feel more of an affinity toward her father than David? Because remember, David came from, he, he did not come from royalty. He was a shepherd out in the field when he got chosen. So she's like, are you kidding me? You are dancing like a 
like any vulgar fool out there. She was just so annoyed by this. But why was she so annoyed? What was the reasoning? And here David, he's defending himself. He's going, you know what? I was celebrating the Lord. I'm so excited. And, she, and he goes, I don't really care. As a matter of fact, it says, yes, and I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even more humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think that I am distinguished. So McCall, the, remained childless throughout her entire life. This is symbolic of the, of the barrenness. And, and in those days, that was considered like one of the worst curses. But really what this is, is she, was, she wasn't able to bear life. She wasn't able to, to have any kind of life. And that's what happens when our hearts are disgusted and sickened by other people or judgmental or whatever. All of the things that surrounded her relationship with David. I don't, I don't know all of the implications of what was going on, but, but she was really super annoyed. And as a result, it cut off life from her. And so today I want to talk about the three different uh, characters in this particular story. There's Uzzah who's just maybe a little obsessed with just his role or, or just a little bit um, flippant about the regulations of God and about the specific things that God has said. He just decides he's going to do things his way. So it's all about him. Or there's McCall, where she's just so annoyed with David, she can't even celebrate the fact that the ark of, of God has come back. She can't even be happy about that. This is, this is the thing for the Israelites. And yet she can't even rejoice in that. So McCall is just annoyed with David. So then it's all about him and her judgments of him. And then there's David, who was willing to strip off everything of himself, his reputation, his pride, his authority, his position, everything. He was, so he was basically like worshiping the Lord unencumbered, worshiping him naked, so to speak. You know, without any of the trappings of, of what humans would say about him, he didn't care. He was 100% sold out for God, 100%. And I don't know, I mean, some scholars say that he shouldn't have had this kind of attitude toward McCall, that it may have come across a little defensive, but I think he was just saying, hey, I don't really care what people think of me. And, and as a matter of fact, God is going to cover me because I was celebrating him. I was worshiping God. And you know, it says in Isaiah 29, 13, it says, The Lord said, These people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is but rules taught by men. And this is the kind of worship Jesus says that is not true worship. You know, because really true worship is all about the heart. It has very little to do with anything else. And true worship isn't just about coming in here on a Sunday morning and singing songs. Really, true worship is about our life. It's about our entire life. You know, again, when they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and your, Jesus is saying that is the most important thing. And so David here, 
He's looking at his wife going, honey, I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What he was saying was that he, his relationship with the Lord was more important than anything else. And that is what true worship is. So how do we do this? How can we live a lifestyle of, of true worship like David? Um, the first thing, I, I did a couple of messages a few months back called Say Yes to Worship, Horizontal Worship and Vertical Worship. If you ever want to go and hear any of the messages from the past, you can go on our website. It's theadventure.church. And you can go into the media tab and hear the podcasts or the videos. But I, I really go in depth on worship and talking about vertical worship, which is our worship toward God. And I talked about seven words for praise or worship. Does anybody remember any of the words? Anybody? There's seven of them. Anybody? Halal, yeah. Halal means to shout, like hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Halal means shout, you means you, and yah means God. Praise the Lord. Halal, hallelujah. So it's halal. Any others? So there's toda, which means to lift your hands, as in like, like throwing thanks, like tossing thanks. Then there's yada, which means like to receive from the Lord, to hold out, to receive. Okay, you guys will remember this one as soon as I say it. It's to get super crazy before the Lord, kind of like David was. People would probably think that he had been maybe drinking. Tahila. <laughs> Remember? Tahila. It's to go nuts before God. We as Americans don't really go nuts before God. Um, kind of sad. In those days, really, they were a dancing culture. We're not much of a dancing culture. I mean, I think we pretty much only dance at maybe like wedding receptions or something right? I mean, we're not like, like we don't really exuberantly celebrate. But God is calling us in our hearts to be exuberantly celebrative, to Hela, to go nuts for him. Um, another one is to humble yourself and to bow, which is what? Barak. Uh-huh. And then the other one, Shabak, which means, anybody remember? To shout unto God with a voice of triumph. And then lastly, zamar, which means to use an instrument. So that's what they were talking about earlier on when it was talking about the castanets and the harp and lyre and all of that. So that is vertical worship. That's between us and God. But then horizontal worship takes it to the next level. The next level is that if we truly love God, we are going to truly love people and we are going to serve them. It is impossible to truly love people without serving them. Part of loving people is to, to lay down your life for them and to serve them and to give yourself up for them. I mean, you can have a feeling of affection. Yeah, I really love them. But to truly love someone means that you, that you lay down your life for them. You lay, lay down your agenda. You give up your own comfort for others. So um, another thing about worship, you know, it's impossible to worship God without a heart of gratitude. I mean, to truly worship God, you have to be grateful. And if you ever, you can't think of anything to give thanks for, just give thanks for the air in your lungs. Or give thanks to God that he saved you, that he's offered forgiveness to you. Or that he let you live in America 
because trust me, things could be a whole lot worse. There's always something to thank God for. And I'm going to give you an example later on of how to, how to thank God even when it's difficult or even when we don't feel like it. So why do we worship? Why should we worship? Other than because the Bible says we should. So after the son of David and Bathsheba died. So in the story of Bathsheba, David saw another guy's wife bathing He lusted after her, he went and slept with her, and then he set up this whole plot to have her husband killed. So then, turns out she's pregnant, so they had a baby, and the baby was very sick, and David fasted, and he prayed, and he cried out, and he begged the Lord, but the baby died. And so it says in 2 Samuel, this is in chapter 12, it says, is the child dead? David asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle, and what did he do? He worshiped the Lord. Now think about this for a minute. Think about this. You have this baby, and you are begging God, please, God, don't, let, don't take this baby. Let this baby live. Let this baby live. You're fasting, you're praying, you're crying out, and the baby dies. Is the first thing you're going to do go worship? For most of us, I don't think so. I mean, what would most of us do? What would you do? Get ticked at God? Get angry? Get upset? Isn't that, I mean, that's kind of more of the natural tendency is that when things don't go our way, we get mad or disappointed or upset. But David worshiped the Lord. And and the thing that I saw in this was that we don't worship the Lord because of our circumstances. We worship the Lord despite them. You know, David didn't go, Lord, thank you. I'm so glad that you took my my son or my baby. I'm so glad you took my child. That's not what David is saying. David is saying, Lord, I know you're good. Regardless of what my circumstances are, I know that you're good. And I know Trust me, we are a church that understands grieving. It's hard to worship when you're grieving. It's hard to worship when you don't feel like it. It's hard to worship when you feel distant from God or when your circumstances are not going right. It's very difficult to worship because we don't feel like it. But we don't worship the Lord because of our circumstances, but we worship him despite our circumstances because he is good. He's always right. He's always true. If you guys, if you hear a lie that says God doesn't love you or God isn't good or God isn't going to do good toward you or all of these blessings and these promises are for other people, not for you, these are all lies. These things are not true. And you have to build your faith on what is really true, what God says about himself. And that's why I harp on this every single week. If you know what the Bible says about God, if you know about the character of God, if you want to understand the character of God, read the Psalms. That's where you can really come to know what the character of God is. And if you really want to get to know Jesus, read the book of John. Get to know Jesus because John was his bestie. And so the book of John really exposes the character of Jesus and who Jesus was. 
but I know when we're grieving, and, and I just wanted, this is a little aside about grief. Um, whether you're grieving the loss of a, a relationship or whether you're grieving a human loss, a loved one, or a job, or a reputation, or finances, or whatever it happens to be, um, you know, you don't, you don't always just grieve the thing, the incident. We also grieve maybe what should have been. You know, um, my husband, um, the day that, that his father passed away, uh, it was very strange because I, I was up at youth camp with all my kids at the time, and, um, and Eric was with the Lord. He was just spending time with the Lord, and, and all of a sudden, he just, he just began to grieve his childhood because he had a really rough childhood. His dad had gone through some really traumatic things in the war, World War II, and when he was a little boy in Indonesia, and, and he, he took it out on his kids. And um, my husband s- sat for like five hours and wept and wept and wept and wept and wept because he realized this is how it should have been. So for those of you who are grieving something or someone and things aren't really reconciled, it's okay to grieve for what should have been or the way that it could have been. I just talked to somebody between services who said that this really hit them because they, they found out that they have a sibling that they didn't know about for all these years. Their, their parents never told them about this half-sister that he has. And he said, I just, he goes, I've just been grieving so much how things could have been. And also, you can grieve toward the future, too. Um, a friend of mine, they, they pastored a church, and there was a, a few couples that came in and just started backbiting and gossiping and, and spreading all kinds of division in the church. And, and several people ended up leaving their church. And my friend, who was the pastor's wife, she just said, you know, every one of those relationships was like having a miscarriage. She said, I grieved what I thought was going to be our future together. She said, I thought we were going to grow old together. So I just want to encourage you. Um, I've been doing a lot of studying on emotions and on um, being emotionally healthy. And one of the things that they say is if you suppress your negative emotions, they don't go away, they grow. And sometimes they morph. So if there's something in your life that you know that you need to grieve, don't ignore it. Let yourself grieve because Jesus has promised to send the comforter. He promised to send his Holy Spirit. That's what John chapter 14 talks about. So even in the midst of that, you can still worship God. You can still allow the comforter to come in. And let me give you an example. I I had a situation... Um, this last, or a couple of weeks ago. And it seemed like a hopeless situation. I was, I was like, ah, I'm, I don't know how God is ever going to resolve this. I mean, it was one of those, like, there's, there's no hope. I mean, God's been faithful a lot before, but it's not going to happen this time. I mean, I really, even though I knew that wasn't the case, I just, I couldn't see a way out, right? And this is how I pray 
So I just let, let you in a little window in here. This is into my private prayer life. I just say, Lord, I, I know this situation looks hopeless, but God, I know that you have always been faithful in the past. Lord, I know that you have always gone before me. Lord, you have always leveled the mountains. God, you are good. I know that you're for me. Lord, I know that, that you have never failed, that your love is perfect. Lord, and I know that you love me. Do you see what I'm saying? All of the attributes of God that I had to draw on, I had to rely on to get me through that trial. And when you start to pray that way, you start to worship God. I mean, I wasn't singing. There wasn't a band leading me. I was all by myself. That is worship. But that is what worship is. It's fixing your eyes on him and exalting him and and not reminding him of who he is because he's not insecure. He knows who he is. Worship is for us. And what worship does is it magnifies God in our minds so that it minimizes our, our, prom, or our problems in our lives. It doesn't always change your circumstances, but it minimizes the effect that they have on us. Does this make sense? That is why we worship God, even when we don't feel like it, even when we're grieving and when we're broken and when we don't understand, or, or even if we're apathetic, we start to thank, we start to praise God, we start to, to remind ourselves of who God is and everything that the Bible says about who he is. And if you don't know how to do that, just open up the Psalms and start reading them. Start reading them out loud. Worship magnifies God in our minds and minimizes our problems in our own hearts. And so that's, that's just a little bit, a little method of, you know, how do you pray through a hard time? Just start telling God what you know about him. So in heaven, it says they're going to be worshiping. In Revelation 4.11, it says, and this is what they're going to be saying. You are worthy, O Lord our God. Can we read this all together? You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. This is what they're going to be saying in heaven. I had a a friend of mine, well, he's kind of a friend, um, and he he used to say, I love God, but I hate worship. And I'm like, you're going to hate heaven. Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to be doing a lot of worshiping. Worship is a part of connecting with God. And David says this in Psalm 15. This is one of my favorite Psalms. It says, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? These are the people that can worship in God's sanctuary. It says, or it says, who may enter into your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts those who refuse to gossip or to harm their neighbors or to speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord. Here's one that's really convicting. And they keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent, such people will stand firm forever. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Worship isn't about us. 
I mean, it is, but not really. It changes us, but it really is about God and about his goodness. And, you know, we take it so casually. You know, we come in halfway through worship, sitting there looking at our phone, checking ESPN, see if the Steelers lost again. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, I mean, singing the words, not even thinking about God, not thinking about anything. And I just feel like the Lord's calling us to a new standard, like enter in. Join with all of creation in the worship of God, even if you're hurting, even if you're broken, if you're confused, if you're lost, even if you're celebrating, even if you're grieving. Worship God, magnify God, see him seated on the throne, enthroned, in the heavenlies. And that's really what he's asking us to do. It's not about how we look. It's not about our appearance. It's about how we, what our heart is doing. It's not about our circumstances. It's about his goodness. Does this all make sense to you guys? Do you hear what I'm saying? So I want to ask you this. Which one of those characters do you relate most to? Uzzah? Are you kind of flipping about worship? It's like, eh, it's not that big a deal. Worship's all right. I mean, some of the songs I like, some of them I don't care. Are you like an Uzzah? I'm going to just do it my way. I don't, ah, it's not that big a deal. Or are you a McCall? You sit and judge other people. Look at them. Look at Jody. She's getting all crazy. Why is she doing that? Why is she crying again? I cry always. I always cry during worship. I'm so. I'm so overwhelmed. When I remember who I was when the Lord found me, man. Hmm. When I see what he's done, when I see how he's changed my life and the lives of so many that I've known throughout the years, he has transformed. He has the power to transform, but you have to seek him diligently. The Bible says he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This means not worrying about what other people think or what they say or how you look or not not being bored or apathetic, but really saying, God, I'm coming into your presence expecting. I'm coming into your presence thanking you. Do you see the difference? Coming in there engaged, fully engaged. And I'm not saying this to, to condemn you or anything. I'm just saying there's more. I believe there's more. I believe there's deeper. We have seen in this church, we have seen seasons where the presence of God was so thick in this room that you couldn't even move. I am contending for that. I am crying out for God to visit us with his presence, to visit us and to transform us as a church despite what we're going through, despite what we've been through. That's my prayer. That's my heart's desire. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So we're going to worship now. So if you could stand up. Just want to ask you, you know, just examine your heart before the Lord. Just say, God, speak to me. Tell me who I am, Lord. Show me who I am and help me. Draw me near to you, God. Offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Can we do that? Yeah.